The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, as we just sang, and as we have touched on other songs this morning, we do ask you to send your Son again to bring about the consummation of the plan that you have initiated long ago and promised to fulfill. The redemption of your people, the cleansing of your world, the spreading of your glory from sea to sea like the waters cover the earth. Lord, make that happen. Bring that day. We ask that you would do it. And until you do, we ask that you would come and dwell near us in great power and in particular mercy. Because while it is that we look ahead to the time when when both all knees bow and every tear is wiped away, in the meantime, the knees are not bowed and the tears still flow. And so we pray that in particular mercy you would attend to the needs of your people. Whatever those specifically might be for individuals, for for groups, for families, for churches. Would you draw near and in great power mercifully protect and save and shield and deliver and draw us on after you, giving strength graciously to run pressing hard after you like Paul talked about in last week's passage. Draw near powerfully, mercifully, graciously. Help us. Lift up our eyes and cause us to see. Give faith to believe. Protect us from distraction and unbelief. Draw us on towards you. And use, Lord, this, this passage this morning to help with that. And use what this passage talks about to help with that. Pray, Lord, that as we look at this passage and as it's preached and thought about and taken out of here, that you would do a work in our congregation of, of creating a, a community that is a modeling and imitating one that presses on together after you. We can talk about that, talk about it often, but you have to create it or it won't be. So please, Lord, do a work this morning to move us, to teach us and to move us. Take your word, make it clear, open our hearts, Lord, have your way with us. I pray, Lord, that you would now, even in this moment, that by your Spirit, you would speak to individuals and set aside in us contenders. All the contenders for the throne in our hearts, that you would set them aside mightily, mercifully. You would lead your people even now in repentance. You would draw us in from distraction and that you would speak. And have your way with us, your people, for our good. Lift up Christ here in our midst and build build this church for your honor, I pray, Father. Thank you for being so immensely good. Teach us now, we ask. Thank you. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of Philippians chapter 3. And for most of the chapter up to this point, Paul has been characterized by an attitude of celebration, even, even singing, so to speak. Celebrating Christ. Though he began the chapter with a warning. You recall back in verse 2, he brought up in front of the church this danger that may come to them, this danger from false teachers who advocate and pressed into Christian communities this idea of what he calls confidence in the flesh. That what you do and how you do it and what you keep on doing and who you are makes the difference for how you stand with God. And he says, in fact, no, it does not. It doesn't affect it at all. 
that just leaves you. Any, any leaning on who you are and what you've done leaves you unrighteous in his eyes. But in fact, we receive a righteousness given from God as a gift. That's what joins us to him. That's what receives the great blessing, the great treasure, communion with Christ. So he moved on from that warning, though, to talk about Christ and the treasure. And he used, you recall, this math analogy, this, this financial analogy of loss and gain, and how he seeks to gain Christ, and so as to, to get him, he sets aside everything else. He counts it all as loss, throws away everything else, counts it as rubbish, so that he can grab hold of Christ. And then he changed the analogy to be one of a race. Last week's passage. I want to run towards heaven to win the great prize full communion with Christ. Indeed, Christ is known now along the path to heaven, gloriously so, but full communion, unhindered, unfettered relationship with Jesus awaits us on the other side of the finish line in heaven. And so Paul presses on, presses on, striving, straining to get there. Which is not antithetical to the gospel of grace. Grace is not opposed to work. Grace is opposed to merit sentence that we very carefully wrote down last week. Grace is opposed to merit, not work. Because of the gospel of grace, because he knows the prize is there for him to be had, he runs to get it. Like digging up the treasure that you know is in the ground. That's what Paul's after. That's what his life is about. And what he means to say is, that's what life is about. Not just me. Life. But all of our lives should be focused on it, and that's what the passage gets at today. It's a new sentence and a new topic, but not completely. It's, it's not disconnected. It's in the same vein of God calling us, his people, calling us heavenward, Christward, if you will. So our passage includes in it a call to imitate Paul in his walk. What we were just seeing Paul's like, it's calling us to be like that, to follow after him. And then, after that basic command, it gives us two reasons why. So I'm going to make three observations from the passage this morning, the, the command, and then the two, uh, the two reasons. One of them is negative, one of them is positive. It's going to be how we break the passage down, but kept all together, the main point for this morning, here, here it is in a sentence. So I'm working towards, carefully imitate those who walk towards heaven. Carefully imitate those who walk towards heaven because that is where we find our home and our hope. Because that is where we find our home and our hope. So I'm going to break that apart into three observations, but first let me read the passage. I'll begin in chapter 3, verse 10. I'm sure that we get the context for what Paul says here at the end. I'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. This is Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Word of the Lord, Philippians chapter 3. So three observations. Here's the first one. Together we should imitate those who live on earth with their eyes set on heaven. This is the part about the command. Together we should imitate those who live on earth with their eyes set on heaven. Verse 17, brothers, sisters, Paul's kind of gathering together the attention of the church as he prepares his command, and really it's a command that has two pieces to it. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. That's the first piece. A command to be imitators of Paul together. And he really means that together piece. He even uses a very particular word to kind of underline. Church, together, imitate me. First piece and the second piece, which is related, similar. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Who's the us? Well, for us, it, it's been months and months since chapter 2, verse 19. But for them, just reading this all through, it only been a couple minutes since they heard him tell them he was going to send Timothy and Epaphroditus to the church for them to receive from, for them to honor and to emulate. So he's sending them these two guys as models, Epaphroditus, Timothy, and Paul together. That's, that's the us. So he says, imitate me and keep your eyes on those ones who walk like us. So you've got Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, other people, perhaps particular individuals in the church, leaders maybe, perhaps some who would come to town and join the church or want to teach in the church. He says, watch out for, not in a negative way, but, but keep your eye on so as to follow people who follow us Includes me and a couple people who follow me. He's got a long chain here that he's developing of modeling and imitating. That's what the command is in its basic. It all comes back to how Paul walks, which he just described for us. Paul walks or runs towards heaven with a focus towards heaven, that is, towards the prize of heaven, Christ. The great prize on the other side of the finish line. Not running towards streets of gold and endless ease. He's running towards Christ, who in fullness will be known in heaven. So I'm saying towards heaven, you could say towards Christ in heaven, whatever you want to say, as long as we're, we're crystal clear, he's running towards heaven because he wants Christ to know him. It's his great concern. To gain that prize, unhindered, unclouded knowledge of it, is communion with Christ. Let those who are mature think this way, and in fact, let those who are mature copy us who think this way and act this way. Let them imitate me and those who imitate me, even down into today. So we don't see Paul anymore, obviously. We don't see Epaphroditus and Timothy. We don't see those who copied them. We see on down a line, graciously, Graciously, think about how God has worked this out. On down through a line, we see people who follow the model given in us, following Paul, who's following Christ. Keep your eye on and imitate such ones. Together. This is what a church is. A collection of copycats put together so that we help each other be just like Paul. We are not, in, in worst expressions, we, we are not a, a social club. We are not an, an organization platform where we can have programs for this and that need to be met. Not that it's wrong to have social things, 
Not that it's wrong to have a program here and there. Not that it's wrong to meet needs. But those are all secondary, tertiary, whatever the word for four and five and six is. Of primary, of primary importance. First, we exist so that into the lives of individual people, into the lives of Christians, would be pressed Pauline living. Because that is Christ-like living. It's not that Paul has one way you can do it. It is the way. And we must be conformed to Paul, to be, to be copycats of him, to be imitators of him. That's what he commands us and commands us to keep our eye on those who are models for us of him. To live Pauline-ish. This requires a, a great deal of humility for us because think about the challenges to it. Paul just told us in verse 10, which is why I read it, I want to know Christ. So far we say, great, me too. That is, the power of his resurrection. Good, okay. And the sharing in his sufferings, being conformed to him in his death. That's Pauline. What we are to imitate. That'll be hard. And step one involves us admitting, I have to learn. I'm not there. And, and a humbling piece of that is that I have to learn from, maybe from you. But another humbling piece of this is that maybe not from you. Maybe specifically not from you, but from you. Because not every Christian, follow this carefully, because this is, I do not, I do not remotely intend it to be insulting, but honest. Not Every Christian walks the Christian life like Paul. And I don't mean perfectly like Paul. I mean many, many of us track halfway through verse 10 and then stop deliberately, hard stop, and say no. We don't want to embrace the sufferings. We do not want conformity to his death. We do not embrace dying to self. We need to say in the church, there is a, a Pauline, that is a Christ-like, that is a cross-centered life that is appropriate for Christians. And then there is another way that many of us walk. And I do not mean to be insulting to you in saying that. I'm familiar with that other walk, personally. But what this means, too often I, I sit among Christians, even, it is a bit surprising to me, even as a pastor, I sit among Christians and I am engaged in dialogue about options where there aren't options. Where the text says one thing, hard indeed, it will lead you into suffering and sacrifice indeed. It is the only allowed option. And I engage with Christians who, who want other. We need to note that in the church because when I say the church exists that we help each other become copycats, the humbling piece of it that we have to admit is that not everyone is equally helpful. That's just true. That's just true. 
And there should be a humbling thing in that because we should say, I want to be helpful to my brothers and sisters, not troubling, not distracting. I want to be helpful. In other words, I want to be one worth imitating. I want to be a model to others. That's what is is commanded here, that we mark those who follow in the example, and I don't. That's humbling. May God give grace to us to see, and if we're honest, we all have pieces of our lives to see. Because none of us perfectly follow Paul. Paul didn't perfectly follow Christ. He's still a sinner, right? We all have ways we need to be increasingly conformed to this Pauline model. So we all need to be humble and hear this, but some of us perhaps more than others. And again, I I say this to you. I, I hope that I can accurately communicate. I want to love you in this. But we have to be clear. If we're 200 people, we are not 200 equal role models. We have to mark who do I need to set my eyes on and who do I need to follow after? Who is it that I should imitate as they press on towards heaven and pursue knowing Christ? That's what life is about. And that one models it. This one, not so much. I connect with this one. This is the problem. I like this one. We play basketball together. It's cool. He's my best friend. And the problem is that you're taking life. That's the model. That's what you imitate. And you shouldn't. This one over here is bent on Jesus. Doesn't like basketball at all. I don't give him a time of day. To my detriment. You understand the problem? It, i got to say, it's, it's a humbling thing to begin to think through this because I immediately ask, am I worth imitating? What kind of model am I? And, and how, how do I engage with this myself? We all need to think about that. There's, there is a humbling piece put on us here, but this is together a community affair. What, what the body of Christ is about is modeling and imitating and modeling and imitating one life in particular, a Pauline life. How he walks as he walks after Christ. But as soon as we set out to imitate a life and how one walks we must also be aware that we are not just about copying behaviors because behaviors come from somewhere. Behaviors flow out of the heart. So we are not, and we must be very careful that we not think, we not hear the language, be an imitator of how Paul acts. And I will then act that way. Okay, good. We might see how Paul acts. We might see how... Another brother or another sister acts. We might watch them and notice, oh, this is how he or she dealt with that, that difficult conversation mercifully, graciously. This is how he or she turned towards Christ in the midst of suffering that just pounded them. I mean, oh, wept and turned towards Christ. Oh, I saw something there. I should do that. How did you do that behaviorally? It doesn't happen behaviorally. So you try to copy the behavior, you realize that comes from a heart. I need to imitate first before the behavior, the belief. A heart that says, knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. I want to know him to draw near to Him, to to meet with Him and to commune with Him, to be changed like I want that in here long before I behave in a certain way out there. If taken seriously, to imitate Paul, to to copy such models will immediately engage us in, in imitating Paul's 
affections, his beliefs, and that takes us into a place where we say, oh God, help, change my heart. I know what is true and I know what I should be, but I'm not. Help, change my heart. Do you want that? Do you? I am, I am not remotely interested. This is not me as pastor. This is me as Steve. I'm not remotely interested in being a part of a behaviorally correct church. A collection of Pharisees can be found in any religion, in any state, in any country. I am very much interested in being around people that I can look to and that I can model for. We are concerned that we have at the desire, affection, love level, a wanting of this Jesus. That will then change how we act in every conceivable way. So to imitate Paul is to imitate his heart. Do you want a heart like his, a heart that is set on Christ and determines all of every other affection and every other joy and every other desire through him? You can't make it so, but you can cry out and ask. God, open my eyes to see you. Cause me to see you as precious. Give me a love. Cause me to understand how wide and deep and long and high is your love for me. And from that love, draw me after you. Do you want that? The church, Paul's command, the church should be, must be about setting before one another lives that are pursuing Christ like Paul's. Setting before one another lives and hearts that are pursuing Christ like Paul's. Modeling and imitating. And that leads us to the second point, why this is so important. Why the church must be about the building of relationships that model and imitate, this is the way we're going. This is who we're after in heart and behavior. That is so important because, reason number one, here's the second point. There are many who will tempt us to follow them into short-sighted destruction. There are many who will tempt us to follow them into short-sighted destruction. This is one of the reasons that Paul tells us in verse 17 to imitate, because, verse 18, for many, there's a reason here, many, let's give me the end of the verse, walk as enemies of the cross. He says he's told them this before and now says it again with tears. He's grieved as he says this about these folks, but he has to say it. He's sorrowful because... While it is not clear, it's debated who exactly he has in mind when he talks about these folks. It's debated. Some people think he's talking about the same people at the beginning of the chapter. Some people think he's got other people in mind. It's not extremely clear who exactly he's talking about, who walks here as the, as the enemy of the cross. But he's grieved because what is clear is that they're in name, in name, they're Christians. He tips his hand to that when he talks about their walk. He's grieved that they are self-deceived, that they are a black mark on Christ's name. And he tells us that when he talks about their walk. They have a walk also, unlike the, the walk in verse 17. They have a walk, and it's wrong. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, which is a second clue. It's not worth saying that non-Christians walk as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Of course they do. They they openly disagree with it and oppose it. It's only worth saying if there are people, it's only, it's only dangerous, it's only a threat if there are people 
who are under the name of Christ and need to be alerted, one needs to be alerted about, these folks actually aren't about the cross. The non-Christians, of course, aren't. But these folks, watch out. So he's talking to them about people under the name of Christian. So he says, follow us in striving to live in light of the upward call of God in Christ for many, many will be around you walking, enticing, luring you otherwise. They live as enemies of the cross, which is why the next phrase, their end is destruction. A terrible verdict. Think. There are people under the name of Christian who in fact walk as enemies of the cross headed to destruction. That's why Paul weeps saying this. Because they don't think that, they don't know that. That should cause us uh, some concern, not just for ourselves, but for, for the people around us, others out there in the community who, who carry around the name Christian, who, who think because they carry the name Christian that they are okay, but they walk as enemies of the cross. In other words, they oppose the cross. The cross itself and what God did at the cross is not front and center in their thinking, in their speaking, in their belief system which is to oppose the single biggest central thing that God is doing in the world, lifting up the cross and Christ crucified. To set that aside is to oppose God and to head to destruction, and that should cause us to weep, not be angry at them. And there are many, many, many people living right next door to you like this. Does it make you weep? It should, it should make us weep, but it's here as a warning to us. It makes Paul weep, so we should note that. But it's here as a warning to us, because while they are enemies of the cross, headed to destruction, the reason they are a threat to us is that they are offering up, the next phrase is, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with eyes set on earthly things. Their God is their belly they worship their desires, their hungers. What inside of them rumbles and what they want. What they can take in and consume. They live for. And why is that enticing to us? Because we are so attracted to it also. We're people. And so there's a danger here that someone can, under the name of Christianity, say, chase what feels good and feels right and is oh so desirable and, and seems so satisfying. Chase it. That's Christianity too. Go get it. Keep your eyes on earthly things here. Live for the here and now. Chase and get. God exists to give you your best life right now. And go get it. Now, in using that phrase... I am not intending to launch off into a, a diatribe against one particular false teacher who wrote a book by that title. But I want to point out that's sold a gabillion copies in America under the name of Christianity. It's heresy. Under the name of Christianity. An enemy of the cross, an enemy of the crossword life headed to destruction in Christian bookstores everywhere. Now, that should make us weep, not get angry. I'm not angry. That should make us weep. Because he and the 20,000 people in his church don't think that. You got that? 20,000, maybe 25, I don't know. Tens of thousands, millions of people read that book. They don't think that. 
Now, I've never met the man. I've never met all those people. I have no, I'm not trying to pass verdict on them. I'm saying that teaching is false. So there it is writ large. Oh, but let's not just... Let's come down here. <laughs> we're, we're contemplating moving as we go around and look at houses. My belly, the God rises up and says, ooh, I want that one. That's not the, the heretical teaching in a book somewhere. That's right here. In all of us. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Sits over here in a Pauline lifestyle. Come follow me as I chase Christ. And what I find rising up in me, and it's in you too, is I want, I want, that would make me feel good. Let me chase that. And the great danger, watch out, because there will be people who come along and tell you, go get it, that's Christianity too. They will deceive you into short-sighted earth focus, their eyes on earthly things. Right down here is where they live to their destruction. Watch out. It's all around you. Many walk even under the name of Christianity and certainly out there in the world with eyes not turned upwards, walking not on the path to heaven, not consumed with knowing Christ. They want this life and this earth. They do not want the crucified Christ and the glory of another world. I want it right now because it feels good to me. They are terrible models and they must not be imitated, but they are all around. And because of what we are, they are very, very enticing. So Paul warns us. Brothers and sisters, it is very natural, especially for us in the Western world, in a world of ease, it is very natural for us to join in with this Christianity that is cross-formed. At the center of it is a sacrificed lamb, beaten and bloodied, killed. It is a, a faith that is cross-formed. And it's very natural for us, because of the blessings of God poured out on our country, to shun everything about sacrifice and change it into what God wants for me is rest and happiness. Does God want rest and happiness for his people? Thank God, yes. That's why he gave us Christ crucified. And to know him in his sufferings now, paradoxically, will fill your heart with more joy than that house will. Than all the money in the world will. Than every sexual encounter you can imagine will. Than every perfect marriage and straight-A child who got into Harvard will. But you know him in his sufferings conformed to his death. So beware the lures of the world that will draw us all, because of our hearts will draw us all into short-term destruction. That's the reason why we have to exist as a community urging one another on after Christ, because there are plenty of other voices urging us otherwise. That's the first reason. And the second reason, the second reason for imitation, here, heaven is our home, and from it comes our hope. Heaven is our home, and from it comes our hope. Verse 20 begins the, the second reason, which is more obvious in in the original language, because it actually says not just but, but actually for. So you've got a for there, just like you do at verse 18. 
a bit more obvious in the original, but it's there. So 18, 19 were the negative reason, and 20 and 21 are the positive reason to imitate Paul as he presses forward towards heaven because our citizenship is in heaven, he says. Verse 20. Echoes of chapter 1, verse 27. Last time we talked about citizenship there. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Here he says, you've got to kind of catch the turn on the language here. He says, the political entity of which we are citizens is not based in that great city in Italy, Rome. He writes this from a Roman prison to Roman citizens as a Roman citizen. The colony of Philippi was a Roman colony. Many of the people who settled it were former Roman military people. And he says to them, imagine how this would even sound in, in English in America, speaking to military veterans, you're not Romans. Forget Rome. Can you imagine, you've just said it to, to American military veterans, you're not Americans, forget America. I fought and bled for this country. What are you talking about? You're crazy. You're not. This is not a colony of Rome. This is a colony of heaven. Your citizenship is there, not over there. I can say this. I'm one of you. I'm a Roman citizen too, but neither of us are. Of course we are, but we aren't in a, in a most profound way. Our citizenship, the colony that we live in, is a colony from there, from heaven. That is home. That's the values that, that govern us. That's the, the nation we want prospered. That's the one we live for. There's the one we look to for reinforcements. That's home. Our citizenship is in heaven. He's brought this up because he wants them to imitate people who live suffering here. And that makes zero sense. It, it just doesn't make sense. If this is your home, why would you reject it? Why would you willingly embrace being set apart from it? You, if this is your home, if you live in Sandy, if you live in Cottonwood Heights and that's home, you care very much about what Cottonwood Heights, Sandy, thinks about you. You want to prosper that city. But he's trying to make a point. It isn't. Really. May God bring it to our minds often. This is not ours. Now, I'm saying that, and I, I, I know I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard before. But just stop and think about how odd that is. None of us really believe that. We, we, we do believe it, but we don't. Tomorrow, maybe God graciously sometime tomorrow will, will poke you and you'll realize, I've walked for the last several hours totally oblivious to heaven. And then you'll realize what I'm talking about. We don't really think like this. If you take a trip, if, if you take a two-week trip to Paris, the whole time you're there, you know you don't live there. Nobody speaks the language you speak, all the food's different, you're trying to figure out everything constantly, and, and you're never aware you're never unaware that this isn't my home. But you come back here, and you'll go days and weeks and months and years without realizing this isn't your home either. May God frequently bring it to your mind. This isn't it. Don't live for it. 
Run towards heaven. That's where your citizenship lies. Live for it and hope in it because, continuing on with the verse, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior. A name commonly ascribed to Caesar. He's poking at this Roman thing again. Caesar isn't the Savior, but the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another word commonly ascribed to Caesar. Caesar isn't the Lord either. We're not Romans. Caesar isn't Savior, and Caesar isn't Lord. But from heaven, our home, we await the coming of a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Both Christians and those who are not Christians need to think about this. Be aware of it. And if, if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure what you think about all this, I understand how that phrase, Jesus is coming, can sound odd. And if I'm honest, half the context in which I hear Christians talk about that or see it in movies or books, half of those contexts embarrass me. They seem very aggrandized and simplistic. Jesus is coming. The end of the world is here, etc., etc. I understand. So, we can agree to set aside some of that. But we must also agree it's still true. No matter what people do with it, how they present it, Christ is indeed coming. There is a time when the Lord shall descend from heaven and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is indeed the Lord. And when He comes, He will call Forth before Him every single person who ever lived, and that includes you. And He will do to and do for every single person exactly what is right. There is no wavering in His righteousness. He will do exactly what is right. And for His people, that means glory. Verse 21 says, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. You follow the whole train here. As you, prayerfully, by God's grace, following after Paul, following after Christ, share in His sufferings, are conformed to His death, and walk through this life under under the, the scorn of a world that is against him, under the pressure of temptation not given into, under the pain of suffering as physically your body breaks down. Getting old is hard. I'm not that old, and I know that. As you walk through this life, bearing up sometimes under pains that you just can't do anything about, even things that are not related to sin but are related to fallenness in the world. As you bear under that day after day and year after year, looking towards heaven, pursuing Christ, what He promises is that one day the Lord shall descend and for His people He will transform you. Think 1 Corinthians 15. A body of lowly decay trapped in temptation and sin and suffering will be raised and changed. 
That is good news. Good news for all suffering Christians. Good news. It is the type of good news that if you hold it in front of your eyes and believe it, actually hold in front of your eyes, verse 21, He will transform my lowly body, then you can go low with your body by choice. Sometimes you don't have any choices. But you can choose to embrace the suffering instead of resist it and run from it. You can choose to follow Him into hardship believing He will transform me and make all things new. And I will be changed to be like His glorious body. He will make us like Him and we will indeed be glorious creatures. Glorious creatures. We never become more than creations. But you and I will both be shocked. We'll be shocked by what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ, renewed in the image of God, like we were once made. You'll be stunned to meet other people in glory. Every night you're down there, you meet somebody here on earth and you think, that is a remarkable person. Everybody you meet in heaven will be remarkable. So filled with, so completely knowing Christ. So completely transformed to be like Him that what He is like, every bit of his good character pressed into us as creatures, pressed into us as creatures, changing us to be like, perfectly like what he made us to be when he said, I want them to reflect me in the world. Now, of necessity, that language is somewhat vague because I, I've never seen it. The closest thing we've got to it is Jesus. And the closest thing we have to that is Paul. And the closest thing we have to that is one of them and those who follow them. Filled with the Spirit, drawn after Christ. So what I'm saying is that I don't fully know what a glorified human looks like. But I have clues. It would be a person for whom love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control fills. Glorious. We will no longer have sin natures. We will no longer be subject to the effects of the fall. And by that same power, the verse says, by that same awesome power that changes me and makes me different, by that same power, he will be enabled to subject all things to himself. Which is also in 1 Corinthians 15, earlier in the chapter. Where Christ over all of the earth brings everything to heal beneath his authority. Casts down every rival and does what is right for those who oppose him that is judgment, condemnation, and eternal death. For the powers who oppose him and seek to destroy his church, it is judgment, condemnation, and eternal death. It cannot be any more sobering than that. There is a Savior and a Lord coming from heaven. 
You cannot escape Him. If you're a Christian, you don't want to. You cannot escape Him. But in the moment, here and now, you can run to Him. You can surrender to Him now. To trust Christ now. So that when He comes and calls you before Him, what you find is the smiling face of a Savior who transforms your lowly body and not the angry face of a lorded, lording judge who condemns and destroys. The choice is before you right now. Turn to Christ and be saved. Cry out to Him, Lord, have me, save me, make me yours. I surrender. And Christian, it should, for us to consider such sobering realities should sit right next to unbridled joy. This second reason is, is thrown in front of you. This is why you should follow Paul with eyes set on heaven, pursuing Christ, because that's where your home is and that's where your hope is. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. That right now is the hope that it's supposed to lift up your hands and give them strength right now. The fulfillment of it is, isn't yet, but right now. This is true right now. Your citizenship is in heaven, and you are awaiting from there a gloriously good Savior who reigns for you. So why so downcast, O oh, your soul? Put your hope in that one. Lift up your eyes and look to that one. <sighs> do, you know, do you know what I mean by that? That <sighs> does not change The world. What I'm trying to show is that what he has bought for you is that. In the world you will find much trouble, much tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, and I am coming for you. Thank God. Imitate people who are like that. Imitate people who in their hearts see Christ and pursue Him. Not perfectly, none of us do. But earnestly and really and genuinely and more so than you. when their hearts are at rest and are relentless. Follow them as they follow Christ. Follow them as they walk through life on this earth with eyes set on heaven where your hope and your home is. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your grace for your goodness to give us Christ crucified. And I pray, help us, Lord. Help us to remember these things because we are a forgetful people. We are an unbelieving people and all around us are voices that will invite us to believe all kinds of other stuff. So help us, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.